You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church from the series, The King and the Kings, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, let's take our Bibles and locate First Samuel chapter 8. And as you're locating that portion of Scripture... Be aware that we don't break principles. Can you say that with me? We don't break principles. Actually, principles break us. Did you know that? You can avoid them. You can try to counteract them. But in the end, we actually don't break principles, which are timeless, universal truths that always have their intended effect at some point. We don't break principles. Principles break us. This is exactly what Israel found out in 1 Samuel chapter 8. It's the beginning of the reversal of revival. They've been enjoying the presence and power of God for a number of years, probably about two decades since chapter 7. It's been some good years, but things are going to turn now. And they're going to try to violate a principle, and they're going to find out as the years unfold that We don't break principles, but instead what? Principles actually break us. Let's read this story and make some observations, can we? My goal today is to just understand the narrative. I'll kind of outline it for you. It's pretty simple to understand. Then I'll take a few questions at some point. So if you have some, they'll scroll the number across the bottom. You can uh, text those questions in. We'll maybe take one or two or so. And then hopefully we'll end with some illustrations of how this looks today, all right? Here's the story, 1 Samuel chapter 8. You'll notice that I have an outline behind me that's pretty simple, and it is repetitive by nature. You're going to see in verses 1 through 9 that they're asking for it. And then you're going to see in 10 through 22 that they're asking for it. (laughs) Let me show you what I mean. Verse 1, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside again. They took bribes and perverted justice. So here, not only was Eli not able to raise sons to follow in succession, Samuel had the same difficulty. And so that ultimately frustrated to a great degree the elders and children of Israel, which is why verse 4 says, the elders of Israel then gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint For us, a king to judge us like all the nations. Like we kind of had it with this system. We're done with this. It doesn't seem to work. And I'm not saying that they were right in that assessment. I'm telling you that's their assessment, all right? So give us a king like the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. It's a great first reaction, isn't it? Can we say what we've said for years, that prayer is always your first and best action? Will you say that with me? Prayer is always your first and best action. Someone asked me this week, well, Todd, I don't know how to pray. I said, just say this. Say, God, help me. That's a good start, isn't it? God, help me. Here, Samuel is the first to pray. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're also doing to you. 
Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So they're asking for what? A king. So they're asking for it, right? But boy, are they asking for it. Here's the solemn warning, verses 10 through about 22. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. I imagine that they're kind of sitting there, maybe they're smiling, maybe like, man, we got our way. They're going to give us a king. Maybe they're kind of leaning forward in their chair, or maybe they're standing kind of with, you know, with a sense of anticipation. Yeah, I can't believe it. They're, they're going to give us a king. Watch this explanation of what's coming. He will take, and you should underline every time the phrase he will take is mentioned in these verses. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground, to reap his harvest, to make his implements of war and equipment of his chariots. He will take out your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants, the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks You shall be his slaves. And in that day, after he has taken so much, you will cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. (laughs) That's a bold preacher, isn't it? You're asking for a king? Yeah. You're asking for it. But the people, verse 19 says, even on the heels of this solemn warning in which they wanted a king to do things for them, and Samuel said, no, he'll actually take from you. They refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. And that probably lets you know the depth of their frustration. In the face of logic, Reason, advice, counsel, they said, no way, give us a king. We want to be like the other nations, and our king will judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And I think... The end of this verse is one of the saddest in all of the Old Testament. Can can you just picture this scenario? Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to a city. You can almost just sense he's coming back from talking to the Lord. And the Lord says, give them what they're asking for. And so he just says, you guys go back to your towns. You can almost just feel his frustration, can't you? I mean, don't read the Bible without the historical ambiance and nuance of the scenario. I mean, Samuel's disappointed. He's hurt. He's displeased. God is angry. And so Samuel just says, yeah, whatever. Go back to your homes. You'll get a king. When I, when I read this story, and I think about revival's reversal, you know, what, what is it that would cause them after two, three, four decades of God's presence in their land, peace in the land, God fighting their battles, growing their crops? I mean, they were living in covenant with God. What would suddenly cause them to say, hey, we're kind of done with that. 
What engineered, so to speak, this reversal of revival that we've seen the last few chapters, last few weeks? I think two major observations would help us here. One is, I think there was a, a, a frustrated discontentment with authority over them. All right? You might want to jot that down. It won't be behind me. I'm just going to kind of walk you through this text. There was a frustrated discontentment with authority over them. You see, something that God's people must kind of wrestle with and embrace is that one of the ways he works with us is through what we call ordained authority. People that God places in authority over us who speak into our life, even if that authority is not always right, God uses authority to help us, to train us, to sanctify us. In fact, this is one of the reasons Romans 13, 2 is so blatantly clear. In Romans 13, he's talking about the government. In Paul's day, it was the government of Nero, who was followed by Domitian. There were 10 reigns of emperors in that time period, about 300 years of the worst church persecution since the beginning of the church. It was in that environment that Paul said in Romans 13 that every Authority that exists is ordained by God, and so he says you should submit to the government authorities. And if you don't, he says this, watch this, Romans 13, 2. He that doesn't, he that resists the government authorities is resisting God. Can, we, can I just say, am I the only guy that kind of thinks like, wow, that's, that's a hard one to embrace, isn't it? What it shows us is that God takes Authority, ordained authority, pretty seriously. And what's happening is here is the children of Israel have watched Samuel not do well in bringing his sons to succeed his priestly line, his, his role as a judge. They're frustrated thinking back to Eli, and so they're kind of done with that. But what they really didn't understand is God wasn't limited by a parent's failures, amen? God was still going to judge and rule his people effectively. But instead, they just took their frustration out on their seen authority when actually what it was was taking, they were frustrated with God. They were taking that out on God. Which is why God says to Samuel, they have not rejected you. Say with me, but they've rejected My sense of this text is this, that when Israel began to be frustrated with the God-ordained authority, it was essentially saying, you know what, God, can you just leave us alone? And if you find that in your life you're discontented and frustrated with God-ordained authority in your life, it is, in, a sense, in essence, saying, hey, God, leave me alone. It'll be the beginning of the reversal of revival. Something very ironic in this text that you might not be aware of, Samuel actually is quite sensitive to this situation. You know, when he finds out about it, he's personally hurt. You can kind of see that in the text, can't you? He felt rejected. He prays immediately. It seems that he begs the people not to do this because he warns them. At the very end, he does seem to be somewhat like just disappointingly frustrated. Like, just go back to your towns. The sense is that Samuel knows the price of rebellion. You know why that is? Here's what I think. 
I think I, can, I might could prove this textually, even though it's not explicit. Samuel is actually in the line of one of the worst rebellers in the Old Testament. Do you know that? His name was Korah. Korah and his group in Numbers 16 rebelled against the leadership of Moses and Aaron and their right to the priesthood. The story goes that they rebelled and Moses then said, well, if you think that your rebellion is right, we'll ask God to judge. And if God lets you die a natural death, then you're not rebelling. You're just simply, I guess, honestly debating. Maybe you have a point. But if God strikes you dead in a supernatural way, you'll know that he's very displeased with your rejection and resistance of his authority in Moses and Aaron. You know what God did? He opened up the earth and he swallowed Korah and his sons. Number 16 says that all of Israel began to weep and mourn and shout because of the judgment of the Lord. Samuel's from that line. In fact, Korah is the, grand, the great-grandson of Levi, who's the initial tribe leader of the, of, the, of the ones who were called out to be priests. Korah is the great-grandson of Levi. Samuel is the seventh from Korah. And I wonder if maybe throughout the generations... That story didn't get passed down. Man, you don't want to resist authority. You don't want to buck up against God's leadership. Remember what happened to great, 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 great grandpa Korah? Remember that big hole in the ground over there? Remember that day when it was so loud we could not believe what we were seeing? I wonder if Samuel heard those stories. And suddenly he sees the people rejecting the leadership that God put in place. And I think it's, he's appropriately sensitive. Now, like, guys, do you know what you're doing? The earth may open up again. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's what's going on here. Some of that past is part of the story. This is why what I see in our nation is troubling at times. And you may think I'm going to call out those who don't like President Trump. Actually, that's not what I'm going to do here. I have a friend that when President Obama was in, our, in office, I felt he was over the line. And I called him, I said, hey, what you wrote, that's over the line. I said, you're a member of our church, and you know what, he's our president. And that's just not respectful. We can disagree on policies, we can disagree deeply on issues, right? And we can voice that. But he is, or he was our president. Which is why when I saw on the news that young teenage boy burning that fire, he's not my president. Speaking of the current president. Yeah, I made this fire. I mean, it doesn't matter which side, red or blue, you talk about. When there's attitudes of rebellion and resistance towards authority, it's a serious matter. And it's the beginning of revival's reversal. In fact, let me just kind of bring this to 50021 for a minute. I bet, even as I'm explaining this, some of you are thinking, I bet the road of problems that I've had in my life over the last two weeks, six months, one year, you're thinking, wow, I bet they can all be traced to when I kind of just got out from under certain authorities in my life. I told my parents, you know, I'm not doing what you're saying. You told your boss, I'm not doing that, I don't like that. You criticized here, complained there. You might even right now in your mind be thinking about a number of things that have happened all triggered by a rebellious, resistant attitude toward authority. I'm just here to explain to you. I think it's in this story. That's one of the fundamental reasons revival was reversed. 
is they were saying, God, we don't like to be under your authority. That's what Adam and Eve thought in Genesis 3. Hey, God, you know, we don't like the fact that we can't eat from that tree. And this serpent says that if we do, we'll actually be like you. Let's take our chances of what he said. Jonah thought that. God, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I don't want to preach. I think I'll go the opposite direction. But resisting God's authority is never a good idea. This is why Paul would say to children in Ephesians 6, Children, obey your parents. Honor your parents. Now, if you think I'm somewhat serious and grim about this almost, it's because I do think this is a weighty matter that doesn't set well in America. (laughs) Would you agree with that? I mean, we are a nation of protesters. I mean, we started in rebellion. So we've raised centuries of people who love to say, hey, I'll stand up against that. And we know very little about biblical submission. I think as Americans, we think it makes us feel weak. Maybe it makes us feel vulnerable. My role today is not to try to explain or appease your American conscience. My goal is to bring to you biblical truth. And the Bible clearly says a submissive attitude towards authority is fundamental to God's presence remaining and his power being seen and felt. This is one of the reasons that when our kids were in elementary school, here's something we did every year. And there may be other ways to do it. Here's how we did it. We feel very strongly about this principle. Um, so our kids went to East Elementary. And so you go the first of the year, you'd have the teacher conferences or whatever they're called, where you meet the teacher, you know, kind of go the hallways, all the classes. And so at some point, we'd meet their homeroom teacher, or, or maybe it was the same teacher. I'm not sure how it went. That was decades ago, I guess. But anyway... Before we leave, we'd say this. And I was the one that said it. Um, I'd say, you know, whether her name was, uh, you know, let's say her name was Kathy. I'd say, Kathy, I just want you to know that whatever you say in our home, it'll be the law. If you send a note home that, that Brett misbehaved today, he'll be punished at home and you're free to punish him at school. He won't get a chance to tell a second story. There'll be no... Me coming to you saying, why did you put my kid? When you speak, we'll believe it. Now, that's a little hyperbolic, I know, because teachers aren't infallible. Could there be times in which I'm just saying, yes, but what were we doing? We were letting our kids know, this teacher's in charge. And you'd better listen, and you'd better respect, and when she sends or he sends word home, it probably won't matter a lot what you're saying. We're going with the teacher. Now, you can laugh at that or maybe ridicule that up to you but I saw it pay off and we saw it pay off in really good ways Every, first of all the teachers loved it they would say to us you know we don't get a lot of that from parents we find parents want to make sure that we're always the one that's wrong their kid's perfect I'm like Phew. I'm far from it my kids are farther from it right <laughs> I'm kidding about that okay <laughs> I'm the furthest from it, first of all. That's the truth there. But the teachers would be like, you know, thank you. And I'd say, my dad's an educator. He was a, a university president. He was a teacher, a high school principal. 
And I just know what it's like to get the calls at night at home. And they're always calling like, well, why did you? And I just want you to know, you have our unconditional 100% support as the authority in this classroom. We're behind you. Why did we do that? Because we think an attitude towards authority matters. Because the minute you start rebelling and resisting, it's the beginning of revival's reversal. Let's move to a second observation here. I think what we see is not just in the phrase, you know, where God says, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me. But I like this phrase when it says, we want to be like the other nations. These two phrases kind of give us insight into the two problems. First of all, like I said, a discontented frustration with authority over them. And then a selfish envy of the culture around them. Hey, we want to be like the other nations. Give us a king that he can judge us. It mentioned twice, verse 5 and verse 20. So, so watch this. Two things kind of begin to breed the reversal of revival. A discontented frustration with authority over you and a selfish envy of the culture around you. Now here's what I think is so interesting. The things that they were wanting, they weren't needing. They had not had a battle in at least 20 years. Did you know that? But they wanted a king to do what? Go and fight their battles. If I'm saying you're like, well, you haven't had a battle in 20 years. And the last one you had, God won it through thunder. You didn't have to lift a finger. Prior to that, you had two battles. You lost 34,000 men when you were on your own. When you were revived by God and repented of your sin, he fought your battles. He grew your crops 20 years at least. You've had it pretty good. So I'm not sure I'm following this. You want God, you want a king to do something that doesn't need to be done? See, they were forgetting just how good they had it. This is how envy works. Watch this, church. Envy feeds on forgetfulness. If you're a parent, you've seen your kids do this. You've taken care of them for years, right? For years, they don't even remember. You provided for them, and suddenly they'll complain to you, and your first thought is, what? Don't you remember? Maybe they'll say to you, why can't you be like, or why can't we have this like... Envy feeds on forgetfulness. Watch this, though. It preys upon, P-R-E-Y-S, it preys upon our peculiarity as well. See, the Israelites here, not only were they envious of other nations because they, they forgot God actually took care of all their needs. They didn't need that king. But they, there's some sense in which they were kind of maybe um, not sure they liked the fact that they were that different. They were peculiar. They didn't have a king they didn't have a monarchy. They had a theocracy. Everyone else had a king. So they kind of stood out. And at some point, they're like, you know what? We don't like being that peculiar. Hey, God, can you give us a king like the other nations? But when we start thinking we have to be like the culture, when we have a selfish envy of the culture to the point that we actually get rid of our peculiarity, it's the beginning of revival's reversal. Watch this, church, because I, I, I'm firmly convinced our attraction is in our distinction. The very thing some of you are trying to shed, you're different. That very element is actually the very thing you should embrace. 
but you try to shed it and you try to look just like the culture. You're envious of them and you've forgotten all the ways God's taken care of you, all the ways character, his promises have been faithful to you. But I want to be like them and you kind of disdain your, your distinction. You forget what God's done and so you want to be like the culture. And I'm convinced that in this story, their envy of the culture around them and their frustration with authority over them led them to essentially saying to God, hey God, leave us alone. We don't like your authority and we like the way the other nations are working. We want to be like them and not under you. So if that's what breeds and kind of um, plants the seeds for revival's reversal, we should take the opposite posture. We should come under God in submission and we should be satisfied with who we are as made distinctly his people by him. I think this shows up in our personal life and in our corporate gathering. And I've just been mostly affected lately by our corporate gathering in which I'm very thankful. And, I'm, and I mean this in a humble way. I'll use the word proud and humble at the same time. Watch this, okay? But I'm humbly proud that you are not ashamed to pray in church. But I want you to know you're in a minority. Few churches actually act like a church when they gather. It seems like often what we want to do is try to be as much like the world, and you'll have to forgive me here, I'm giving some of my own church growth philosophy here. We want to be as much like the world so the world will come to us. And they don't see a lot of difference. I actually want to do the opposite. I I want to be completely different. I want to pray when we gather. Does it take some explanation? Sure. It's not meant to be impolite or make folks feel odd who are guests. But we are a church... And churches pray. I want to teach the word. I want to have our Bibles. It doesn't matter if it's electronic or hard copy. But I don't really care if you hear a lot of stories from me. I'd rather you hear God's story. Amen? I'm expecting you to respond. I think we should baptize people. I think we should call for obedience. I think we should confess Christ openly. I think folks will get saved and say, yes, I'm a follower. Confess Christ before men so he won't deny us before the Father. I think all of those things are legitimate and right and expected. And they are what makes the church the church. Why do we try so hard to to, to not be what God has actually called us to be? We're called out people. And I think one of the things that's happened in my life the last three weeks is I've just gotten really okay. Maybe I should say I've just gotten way okay with just the fact that, you know, I'm just kind of peculiar. I didn't mean that to be funny. I really didn't. I think you're kind of weird too. Like, you know, I kind of feel odd writing that letter a few weeks ago. Like, I want to invite you to come in. Let's just... Pray as we start our service. I felt odd asking you to come early, but then I thought, why do I feel odd? We get an hour and a half a week. It's all we get to stir one another to love and good works. We get an hour and a half a week. It's all we get to kind of put on display to our community the power of God in our midst. And by the way, 1 Corinthians 11 through 14 says that if an unbeliever comes to your gathering and they see what's happening, they should say, truly God is among you. It is not a a weird expectation to expect God to move among us when we gather. But we've become so used to like powerless, dead, ritual gatherings that are short, 
and, and just kind of fill with stories and they make you feel good. And I don't want any part of that. I would rather have a, a, a sincere substance rooted in God's character and his word that calls people to fall on their face before a holy God and repent and obey. And actually then when people see that to say to anyone who's lost, who's an unbeliever, would you repent and believe with us? So I've just kind of become way okay with the fact that that's probably not really accepted. I don't know if our church will ever grow large. I don't know. It might actually shrink. I don't know. But we've got to be okay with our distinction because I think that is our attraction. Our unlikeness is actually our uniqueness. And if you try to shed and take away the very things that actually make you different, that's a bad move. That's the beginning of revival's reversal. So I hope you kind of caught these two major threads here. In this story, when Israel suddenly now is going to begin to see years of the Lord in control, but actually giving them what they want, it started with seeds of discontent and frustration with authority over them and a selfish envy of the culture around them. They were resisting God's authority, running after the world's acceptance, and this eventually led them to a dangerous dead end. Namely, the full extent, the full effect of their sin. In Israel's case, what was it? It was captivity in Babylon. It was the dispersion of the ten northern tribes. I mean, it was almost, it was close to extinction for this nation almost. God brought them back, rebuilt the temple, but there were... 70 years at least of horrific consequence of their sin. Why? Because they asked for a king. And by the way, it was always God's plan to give them a king. Did you know that? The last verse of Judges says this. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was God's plan to give them a king in his time and in his way as the prototype, so to speak, as the shadow of the real king, Jesus. So their sin wasn't in wanting a king. Their sin was in wanting a king immediately. And jumping away from God's authority, saying, we want to do it our way, our time. See, this idea of frustration with authority over them, envy of the culture around them, led them to a cold, kind of dead, strange place, a dead-end road. Here's a better idea. Submission to God and satisfaction in God. And when I say that, here's what I mean. Submission to God's demands, and I use that word intentionally, because a holy God has demands on your life. Your creator calls you to obedience. I'm not trying to be crass or impolite. I'm just trying to set the record straight about who's in charge here. It's not me. It's God. And his word calls us to a lifestyle of obedience to his word. Are you with me? We've said it before. We'll say it again. Christ is not our consultant. The Lord's not an advisor. He's king. He's captain. And so submission to God's demands and then satisfaction in God 
That's the posture we should take. When we submit to God, we are satisfied with the fact that we are distinct. We obey his demands. We accept our distinction. We embrace it. I find that then God delivers. But revival is reversed when we run away from these two things and try to resist authority and get the world's acceptance. I'd much rather linger and live under God's power and presence, wouldn't you? By submitting to his authority and just being satisfied that, man, we are distinctly his people, called out. Yeah, we're different. Before I show you how this looks, let me see if there's any questions that may have come in. Mary Ann, are there any questions that came in at all today? Okay, she said no. If there were or if there's some coming in late, I'll address them maybe just individually when I get them later. You say, Todd, what does this look like? Let me, show, let me share a couple stories as we wrap this up about how this looks, okay? I'll try to take historical account, some of the principles which we don't break. They what? They break us. And I'll put them into some modern-day clothes. Let's dress the story in the 21st century. Submission to God, satisfaction in God. It's, it looks like a man who, in the hospital last night, calls Brad Miller and says, hey, uh, I live in Crested. I was at the funeral. It's, it's Brad's dad's half-brother, right, Brendan? That was Steve, right? At the funeral, I heard a great message from Brad about how God moves people from being a sinner to a saint. He was thinking about it. Holy Spirit's convicting him. Well, somewhere, I guess yesterday, he's started having some health issues as well. Comes to Des Moines to the hospital, calls Brad. Brad, I've been thinking about what you were saying. I'm at the hospital. Could you come see me? I want to talk about that. So last night in some hospital room, this guy named Steve bows his head and submits to God and accepts the distinction that he now has as a child of God. He got saved. Amen. It's not complicated. He moved from sinner to saint. By what? By submitting to truth. That Jesus Christ is the only way to God, the only way to heaven, and that forgiveness is only found by believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he bowed his head last night. He said, Lord, forgive me through Jesus. At that moment, he became a different person. He became a new creation, the Bible says. You know what Steve's doing? He's embracing, yeah, I'm different. I'm okay with that. I don't want to be like I was, amen? I've got a new eternal home. I've got a new appetite. I've got a new soul. That's how that looks like. Maybe you're here this morning. You're like, Todd, I've been resisting God's authority. I've been running after the world's acceptance. And man, my life's headed towards a dead end. God's given me exactly what I want. (laughs) Yeah, I was asking for it, and now I'm asking for it. (laughs) And by the way, God does that. He will give you exactly what you want if you continue in rebellion, which is the full extent of your sin. Romans chapter 1, James 4, Genesis 3. How much better it would be, though, to take a detour, not go to the dead end, and instead submit to God, trust Him, and then be satisfied in Him. It looks like a young couple that we married last night. Nick and Brittany, some of you may have met them. Um, they were here a few weeks ago, and ironically, they were here the week we talked about purity and what it looks like to live as a child of God. And I explained one of the ways in which 
God's distinction of us should show up is in our sexual purity and marriage arrangement and so forth. And just said, you know, living together, um, that's not what God asked for. If you're a Christian, that's not what God uh, wants. It's not what he, he, he is not pleased with that. Well, they were here, and he was only here like one or two times, and so they came to see me that day. I mean, and Brittany was weeping. She was crying. She goes, Todd, I'm really convicted. I've not been doing the right thing. We're living together. We're not married. I'm a Christian. And, and Nick was just like, why is she so emotionally moved, you know? So I tried to explain to him that, well, the Holy Spirit inside of her is convicting her now, Nick. So I just kind of shared the gospel. Well, that week, Nick got saved, Amen. came to Christ. So they came back to see me again later, and they said, hey, we, we need to do the next right thing, so we should get married. So they talked to their families. And so, make a long story short, last night, 4 o'clock, they got married. Nick's getting baptized, Lord willing, 26th. But when I heard Brittany's, from what she said last night, needs to get baptized well, so we'll see how that works out. You know, I'm good with one step at a time as long as we have some legs moving in that direction. Amen? That's kind of what I'm thinking. But what I'm seeing this couple is like, we heard the truth, and instead of resisting God and saying, no, we're going to do our own thing, step by step, they just came under God's authority. She moved back home. Nick got saved. They got married. See, some of you here this morning are thinking, Todd, I could never solve all the problems that, are, that I'm facing. You don't have to solve all of them. Just do the next right thing. Just do the next right thing. And God will prove faithful and carry you to the next step. And the next step. That's why James says this. Watch this. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And this morning, nobody's here by accident. You with me? There's not a single person here that you're here coincidentally. God has drawn you here. His presence is powerful. You're here for a reason. Could it be that God's asking you to take the very, just just the next right step? For some here, it'd be repentance and just say, Lord, your truth, your authority is what I want to come up under. I want to quit resisting and rejecting you. That might mean for some to be saved. Maybe you're here this morning. You've never trusted Christ. You've never become a Christian. You don't know if you stood before God. You don't know what you would say to him. If he said, you know, why should I let you into my heaven? You might say, well, I was a pretty good person. I was better than Todd. Um, Well, when I was a little baby, they put water on my head. Or I gave a lot of money one time to a good, good cause. Or my parents had a really good name. And none of those answers work. Why? Because there's only one way to be made righteous before God. There's only one way to go from sinner to saint. It's by trusting and believing in the work that Jesus has done for us. So when Jesus came as God in the flesh, he died on the cross for us. And in that death on the cross, he bore all of our sins. He was our substitute. When he died, was buried, God saw Christ's death. And when God raised him from the dead, it was God saying this, I accept Christ's death as the satisfactory payment for your sin. God stamped, paid in full. And so now, how are folks made right with God? By simply believing in Jesus Christ and saying, Jesus, would you forgive me through your death? Would you forgive me for my sin? I trust what you did for me is the only way to be saved. That's called a gift. It's the grace of God. Maybe that's your first step. You just got to repent and say, I'm going to come under that authority and be saved. Maybe it's another situation that you're a Christian, but you've been in no disobedience, or maybe you're just kind of resisting God's authority, or maybe you find there's this cultural envy, and you're trying to shed actually what makes you distinct. 
You know what? Here's a better idea. Shed your idols. Embrace your distinction. You're a peculiar people. You're a called out assembly. You're a holy nation. You're a priesthood. You are. Just get okay with it, okay? And let that very distinction be your greatest attraction. Where people wonder, like, what is up with you, Lisette? Like, hey, man, God owns me. That's what's going on, you know? So my question to you is, what's your next right step that you should quit being ashamed of? Is it to be saved today? To say, man, I've been trusting my own works, my last name. (laughs) But if only Jesus can save today, I will trust the Lord and I will not be ashamed of it. Count me as one who is a believer today. Maybe it's to be baptized. Maybe it's to... to, um, apologize and make amends with a relationship. It could be anything like that. But what's your next right thing of which you should not be ashamed? That's the way to model and show submission to God and satisfaction in God. On the hills of that, let's pray.